But if you would, turn in your Bibles to Galatians. I'd like to revisit and get back into the book to where I started a year ago. So uh, I think I'm doing pretty good. I have buddies in the ministry that take a lot longer on books than I do. And it's not a race uh, at all. Uh, you know, we're, <clears throat> if it is, I would prefer more of a marathon than a sprint. Uh, but we're jogging along, you know, at a good pace. And I, I just am sensing the Lord leading me into some relational oneness topics. I love visiting our theme, uh, looking up, looking in, looking out. I really want to focus on the looking out part as we engage the community with this message of life that we have. And it needs to re be released from these walls, right? We need to go not just do church on Sunday, but be the church uh, throughout the week and engage the community with this wonderful message that we freely received. And God says, then go freely give it. Um, so just by way of short review, I'd like to draw your attention to Galatians chapter 1. Look where he says, verse 4. I just want to give some highlight thoughts. Jesus gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, according to the will of God and our Father. Look at verse 6. He says, I marvel that you're so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ to another gospel. So the book of Galatians was written to a group of Christians in a region, more like a county. It'd be like to the Orange County uh, churches. So this would be the Galatian region, and he's surprised and he's perplexed that they are so soon removed, not from church, not from rules, but from their relationship to Christ. He says, I'm so surprised that you would settle for something less than Jesus immediately. And it's not like they were upgrading when they went to, from Jesus to Moses and they were going to the law. They weren't upgrading, they were downgrading. Um, and so I almost said they went from a Ferrari to a Pinto, but someone has a Pinto in here and I don't want to offend them, right? I do not want to offend them and they're not here. And Maddie, don't even mention this to the people that I'm referring not to, okay? <laughs> um, so going back to the law was a downgrade. Look at verse 16. I think this is a key point. Paul's given his testimony here, and he says, hey, uh, I was, you know, uh, he gives his testimony a lot. In this particular case, he says that God called him into this ministry for the purpose to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him. Notice that revelation is like he's saying that, that I would know Christ in me and then uh, preach Christ through me. And so his message was, a Christ-centered message. And then um, moving along, chapter, and then he talks a little bit more about his testimony, about the years that he spent uh, in different areas, learning the gospel, getting it taught directly from uh, Christ. And then chapter two, he gets more into that background, uh, more of his autobiography. And then he talks about him rebuking Peter uh, for his hypocrisy you know, acting one way when he's around a certain group, acting a different way when he's around another group. And then he comes down to verse 16. He says, no, no, we got to know that a man or a woman is not justified by the works of the law, 
but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Very clear, concise verse. And um, if you're, look, the same way uh, you're saved initially is the same way you walk daily. It's by grace through faith. And so it's just as wrong to be, uh, I guess, legalistic in one's salvation as it is in one's sanctification. So you're not saved one way and sanctified another. He's basically saying, look, you're not saved by the law and you're not sanctified by the law. It doesn't make you cleaner, closer, or more compatible with God. The law had its purpose. It served its purpose. Jesus, and he's going to say, was born under the law in chapter 4, verse 4. Uh, he was he lived under the law, um, and he died under the law, and he fulfilled the law, and he didn't take the law away, but for the Christian, the law doesn't have that place that it had uh, when you previously were unsaved. And so he goes on to say, verse 20, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Here's my favorite thought, yet not I, but Christ. It, that, that's my favorite thought from the book of Galatians. You could have your own favorite thought. I even have a sticker on my truck. You can't see it because my, my window's black and my truck's black and the sticker's black. <laughs> I didn't, it, there was a, a guy in church, Ethan, I talked to him the other day, by the way. He's doing good. He's doing, well, yeah, you, we'll just check in later, I guess. <laughs> um, we called him our grace baby because he got saved out of Mormonism and um, he got saved by grace, but then he lived by grace. He skipped Galatianism, which a lot of Christians don't skip Galatianism, right? <laughs> And so we're like, wow, uh, you have a kid on the way, by the way, got a promotion, doing good at church. Anyways, um, so he made these stickers, not I, and it was based off of Galatians 2.20 because he really latched on to that. I even, yeah, he just, I even, he's just a graphic designer. Um, I'm approaching him too, by the way, for websites and stuff like that. Anyways, um, not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I love verse 21. It's like, <clears throat> I don't frustrate the grace of God. If righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. He doesn't frustrate, agitate, confuse the grace of God. He doesn't water down the grace of God. For if righteousness comes by the law, then Christ is dead in vain. In other words, if you could get righteous by doing something other than what Christ has already done, then Jesus wouldn't need to show up. That's what he's trying to say. Chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who's tricked you that you should not obey the truth? Before your eyes, Jesus Christ has been um, evidently set forth and crucified amongst you. This only what I learned of you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, by the hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect? by the flesh. That's what I was trying to say. Colossians 2.6 says it this way. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. The same way you received him is the same way you walk in him. You don't upgrade to the law. Like get Jesus and then get Moses. The two are incompatible. Like oil's good. Water's good. Oil serves a purpose. Water serves a purpose. You need water to live. And oil is very valuable right? But you get the British Petroleum BP with the greatest ecological disaster of, you know, of recent where the pipeline broke and all that oil is flooding into the, the water. That's not a good thing. 
you put water in your gas tank or water where the oil should go, that's not a good thing for your car, right? Like they're two, they, they're two liquids. They're two very valuable in their own purpose and right, but they don't go together. So law and grace is the subject of the book of Galatians. And they were trying to make two things compatible in which they're not. Okay, they need, they're excellent on their own. And that's where we need to rightly divide the word. Jesus came to give us a new covenant, not an upgraded covenant with the old one attached to it. That's where you put new wine and old wineskins. Okay, it's, they're not, it's not going to work. Jesus says, if you sow new cloth on, or uh, old cloth on new cloth, or I forget. He's like, the, they're going to rent and the, the, the rip is going to be worse than initial. So drop down to chapter 3, verse 10. For as many as are under the works of the law and are cursed, for it's written, cursed is everyone that continues not in the things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So he's basically saying you can't, you can't just pick your favorite Old Testament verses to live by and make everyone live by those. Right? You've, it's an all-or-nothing all proposition. And then he says in verse 11, but no man or woman is justified by the law on the side of God, for it's evident. Here it, here it is. The just, you're saved by faith and you live by faith. And I, I think verse 12 to me summarizes the law. If you could just remember this one thing, the law is not of faith. Hebrews eleven six, For without faith it is impossible to please god i would say this without faith it's impossible to be saved by god but the bible clearly states the law is not of faith why give me a give me a set of give me a code written on any external medium whether it be lambskin a rock uh, etched on a wall and I could, with good intentions and good A-type personality and great discipline, achieve those things in the, in the energy of my own flesh. So, and what he's saying is the law does not take faith. See, because when you do the law, you're relying on the performance of yourself. When you trust in Jesus who did what you couldn't do for you, you're trusting in the performance of someone else. And that's a whole nother matter and that's humbling to you when you have to do that. And that's why when we were in religious cultures, it was the most offensive thing for someone to hear the grace of God. It tr truly struck them as the most offensive message possible, that you can't do anything, Jesus did it all. You're saved by faith alone and Christ alone. Jesus plus nothing equals everything is the most offensive message to someone that's trying to mix works and grace, oil and water, old wine and new wine. It's the most offensive message, all right? But we're dealing with a group of Christians that were saved the right way and sanctified the wrong way. This is why this issue, um, in the 1500s, there needed to be a reformation on sola fide, right? Martin Luther, you're saved by faith alone, okay? Fast forward another 500 years, maybe there needs to be another reformation within the American church. Guess what? The law doesn't make you 
better with God. It doesn't make you more accepted with God. It doesn't make you more holy or more righteous. Um, <clears throat> the law doesn't do anything. You're saved by faith and you walk by faith. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Don't settle for something less than Jesus, even if it's Moses. So that's where we're at. Um, you move into chapter, well, look at chapter um, 3, verse 24. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster, our guide, our tutor, to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, or the object of our faith, Jesus, we are no longer under that schoolmaster. Right? But yet everyone still wants to date their teacher. <laughs> that sounds weird. We're all the law is our teacher. You know, I like going back to the law. For you are all children of God by faith in God. And I like verse 28. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And this, what, this is what the new covenant does. It rips the veil. It gets rid of the whole visible temple system and the sacrificial system. It gives equal access to whosoever would call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It gives equal access to everyone to have the Shekinah glory that was just veiled up in the Old Testament. And Jesus, he rips it and gives access to male or female. Now it doesn't, you don't need to be from a certain uh, Jewish background and a certain tribe of a certain gender of a certain age. It's both young and small, rich or poor, bond or free. We're all welcome at the table. And so, um, so you have the, the picture here of God being an equal opportunity savior, as I've said multiple times before. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, talks about being heirs of God. Um, verse 9 and 10, he says, But now after you've known God, or rather known of God, why do you turn again to weak and beggarly elements, wherein you desire again to be in bondage? You could see his tug of war with them. They're always wanting to go back, back to bondage, back to bondage. It's like the, it's like the children of uh, Israel after they left Egypt. Remember, they wanted to go back. They wanted to go back, back to bondage, back to bondage, back to bondage. It's like any good intentioned felon, right? Not all of them. I just talked to one of my friends from high school yesterday. I'm like, how come you don't have a gun? He's like, I have a felony. I'm like, oh, that explains it. <laughs> Not all felons want to go back to prison, but a lot of them do. Ex-convicts, right? A lot of them want to go back to bondage to be told what to wear, uh, what to eat, when to go to sleep, uh, all that stuff. They want their life scheduled because they can't handle um, the freedom. And so he says, you guys want to go back. You observe days and months and times and years. I'm afraid of you, lest I bestowed upon you labor in vain. So let's drop down to verse 19. And this, this will be our passages that we'll look at. Verses 19 through 31. And the main verse that I really want to hone in on is going to be uh, verse 29. But let's work our way down. My little children, of whom I travail and birth again until Christ be formed in you. I desire to be present with you now and to change my voice, for I stand in doubt of you. He'd wanted, he wanted to speak to them face to face and have his tone and demeanor. He wanted to, you know, he loved them. He's calling them little dear children. He doesn't want to go back and have kids again to go through all the struggle of, you know, seeing that whole process take place again. But he's, he's entreating them. This is kind of a motherly approach here. Um, and he's like, I just want to be with you to kind of help you through these things because he knows they're being deceived. 
He says, tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you not even hear the law? And I think at this point, this is very interesting because a lot of people that like to live out of both covenants, out of both mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Jerusalem, both people that want to have a relationship, they want to be married to Jesus, right? But they want to date Moses on the side, which is called spiritual adultery in this allegory, so to speak. Um, He's basically calling them on it. He's like, really? You want to keep part of the law, but don't you even know what the law really says? And I dare say that Christians that try to hijack or cherry pick certain things out of the Old Testament as their kind of their their pet law-keeping verses don't even know the law. Because what happens is the punitive aspects of the law as far as the soul that sins, he or she shall die, no one goes for that. No one. I've never met anyone that goes for that. In fact, in the Old Covenant, God made provision. Okay, you should die, but in this system, an innocent animal will die in your place, but you're still accountable for those sins. It's just on a, uh, that's what a word atonement means. It's on a temporary, pay pay it later thing. And when Jesus came, he paid all the Old Testament sins with the IOUs on the cross. But they still had to be dealt with. That's why they didn't, when they died, they never went to the presence of the Lord. Why sin? So, <clears throat> in the old covenant, though, the soul that sins, it shall die. The wages of sin is death. And to say that oh, you're, you're going to keep part of the law, but yet when you break the law, no blood is shed. What that does is it waters down the law and it makes God look weak and impotent and not one that keeps his word. But here's the thing. God isn't weak and impotent. He always required death for, for sin. The wages of sin is death. The, the gig with the New Testament is that Jesus paid those sins with his blood. I'm the one that should have died, yet he died for me. Because it wasn't the blood of animals that's going to take care of my sin. It was the Lamb of God that comes that takes away my sin and the sin of the world. So the New Covenant doesn't water down the Old Testament. The new covenant actually elevates it and says, yeah, anyone that breaks any of those covenants should be the one to die. But what Jesus does in his grace is he says, you don't need to die, I'll die for you. But what Christians do is when they go back to the law, they try to keep the law, and then they break the law, and they're like, oops. Where God says, it's not oops, it's death of either you or an animal. What's it going to be? That's where it gets confusing. And that's what Paul's trying to say. Tell me, you that desire to be under the law, do you not even know the law? And he would be the right person to ask that question and actually answer it. So he says, here's where I want to get into. He says, and he's going to use an allegory. And I think the Apostle Paul has the right to do that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Go back to the Old Testament and use Abraham, Isaac, Ishmael, Sarah, and Hagar. He's going to use them as an allegory, but I think he has every right to. Because the way you interpret the Old Testament is in light of the truth of the New Testament. And so we could go back. Look, Abraham, uh, Sarah, and Hagar are not an allegory in the Bible. They're real people with real events that really happen. But he's saying from their real story, he's going to draw an allegory and teach us something about the new covenant and the old covenant. All right? Fair enough? So 
<coughs> he says this, for it is written, Abraham had two sons, the one by a, a bondmaid and the other by a free woman. You know, the bondmaid, right? The slave, that would have been Hagar. Free woman would have been Sarah, his wife. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, but he of the free woman was by a promise. And let me just bring this up. Paul would have known the code of uh, Hammurabi, which at that time basically stated during Abraham's time, if you're a slave and then you give birth to a child, that child is automatically by default a slave. And so the people reading it during that time would have known the code of Hammurabi. And so we know it from the scriptures too, because we could, we could understand as we connect the dots from that culture in that time period. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh. That is so key to understand. So the Ishmael that came from Hagar is of the flesh. Remember we just read in, in, um, in Galatians chapter 3, uh, verse 12, the law is not of faith. You could say the opposite of that or the antithesis of that was the law was of the flesh. It wasn't of faith. And this is the analogy he's bringing up. But the free woman was of the promise. Which of things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, which genders or lends itself to bondage, which is Hagar. For um, this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answers to Jerusalem, which now is and his bondage with, with her children. And what he's talking about in this allegory, he's bringing a real-time uh, illustration into it. He's basically saying the Jerusalem of his day that was there, it was in bondage. It was under the law, and it was under Roman rule. And so that's what he's trying to illustrate there. But the Jerusalem which is above is free, which is the mother of us all. And this is a reference to, obviously, Revelation 20 elaborates more on this. The, the holy Jerusalem that comes down, you know that 15 by 1500 square cube, that weird thing that you read about in the Bible um, that comes down? That's the Jerusalem that's above. And that's the one that's without the, the mosaic thing going on. And that's the one where freedom is and where all of, all of our sins have been forgiven and there's no tears, there's no sin. It's, we're living in the, the joy of the Lord. Um, and that's what he's referring to there. For it is written, rejoice, you barren that bear not, obviously, Sarah, break forth and cry, um, thou that travailest not, uh, for the desolate has uh, many more children uh, than she which has a husband. And I think the reference here, too, in this allegorically speaking, is when you think of the promise given to Abraham way back in Genesis 12, all the way to verse or chapter 21, and we'll visit some of that is that God said, through your seed, all the nations of the world will be blessed. And if you think of all the nations versus one nation, the Arab nation, which would be from the lineage of Ishmael, definitely more people are receiving Christ um, uh, through that covenant promise. And so he goes on to say, verse 28, Now we, brethren... As Isaac was, are the children of the promise. So now he's connecting born-again believers to not the flesh system, the Mount Sinai cursed, death, condemnation, legalist system. He's saying, no, you're not of the slave system, 
<clears throat> the bondwoman system, you're not of that human made up ingenuity system like, oh, just do Hagar and, and Abraham, you guys figure it out. You say, no, you're of the miraculous one. You're of the one that's of promise. You're of the one that if God doesn't do it, it's not going to happen. That's the system he's saying. You guys are of that faith, the miraculous one. The one when, when her womb was dead, it only took resurrection God to give life back to her womb. And then he says, uh, verse 29, but as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. And that's, if Lord willing, I'd like to really get to that thought. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. Now, he already said this is an allegory of two covenants, the old versus the new. Look at the implication that he's saying there. If you cast out the bondwoman, what is he saying you're getting rid of? Who does the bondwoman associate with in this allegory that the Bible says? Old covenant, right? So he, what he's saying is, Look, and God blessed her, and God didn't kill her. God provided for her. There, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is good if a man uses it lawfully, the Bible says. Okay? The law has its proper place. So we're not saying throw it in the trash can, although when you read Hebrews chapter 8, at the very last verse of Hebrews chapter 8, it says, that which is decaying and vanishing is waxing old and is going to be done away with. And he had the application is to the Christian. There's no place in your life. Hagar has no place. She's not compatible with Sarah. Hagar and Sarah, you know, we lived in a, in a community where polygamy was uh, accepted. Seldom did it work out, <laughs> right? And this whole idea, polygamy was the, definitely Joseph Smith's idea where we lived and Brigham Young's idea. Here it was uh, Sarah's idea. And it didn't work out immediately. There was no compatibility. <clears throat> so, um, so then look at this last part. So then, brethren, or wait, cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. They're incompatible. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. That's your identity. That's your identity. Are you guys with me? That was all the introduction, okay? So now let's pray that Jesus would take us in the rapture so we don't have to sit for the rest of this. Dear Jesus, I just pray that you would guide us uh, through this time. I pray for the sick that couldn't be here, Alvin, Gladys, uh, others, um, Lord, that are out and about that aren't with us today. But Lord, you knew that we would be here and you knew that you would be our instructor and teacher and our our destiny, Lord, you're, you're the goal. Um, and so I just pray, Lord, that you would just turn the lights on in our hearts and uh, still us and uh, keep us, um, I, guess, uh, I guess, the cares of this world and, and the thoughts at a minimum, Lord, so we could just really take out this time and think about what you have for us. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's go to so in this lesson, I'd like to expand on this illustration the apostle is using when he's talking about two wives, two sons, two mountains, two covenants, and two marriages. And I think that graph, uh, yeah, right here, the battle of two wills and two covenants, 
Hagar versus Sarah is basically the law versus grace in the Bible's own allegorical explanation. And Ishmael versus Isaac is definitely the flesh versus the spirit, right? Human effort versus God's effort. I came up with this little chart here. Um, I don't know if you could see it. I tried to squeeze it all in. But you could see this kind of this, this Hagar versus Sarah or Mount Sinai versus Jerusalem, the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. And you'll see in comparison, it's the law versus grace. It's Hagar the slave versus Sarah the free wife and woman. It's Ishmael who was after the flesh versus Isaac who's after the spirit. It's Ishmael which illustrates man's plan versus Isaac which was God's plan. You see, Hagar was Sarah's idea. And in Sarah's case, uh, her to conceive a son, that was the spirit's idea. So who initiated what there? So then on one side, you have good intentions, which was Ishmael. Well, let's, you know, let's just help God out type of thing. And then you have the other, on the other side, God's intentions where he says, I don't need help. I could take a dead womb. I could take something dead and bring life to it, which I think is the bigger picture here, that God's the source of resurrection life. So you have on one hand, human effort uh, illustrated with <clears throat> Mount Sinai and uh, Hagar. The other, you have the Holy Spirit's effort. You have one man reaching up to God, which is basically religion. And then the other, you have God reaching down to man. You have one, which is earthly Jerusalem, which was in bondage at that time. And then you have heavenly Jerusalem, which is free, which is far out of our reach. But that's our new home and our new identity. You have one, which is Mount Sinai, which represents death and condemnation. Uh, and then the other, you have Jerusalem. And the reason why I put Mount Jerusalem is because if you think about it, it's, uh, you always went up to Jerusalem, but it's an allegory. So he's referring to the spiritual Jerusalem as well. One represents the flesh. The other one represents faith. Summary, one represents death. The other represents uh, life. So uh, here's a quote. The old nature knows no law, but the new nature needs no law. What we, we're not lawless just because we're not yoked up with Hagar. We just have a new, we're not under the law, we're under the Lord, which is a faith system. It's a spirit-led system. You just read in Galatians 5, George, uh, you, you, he that walks under the spirit is not under the law. It's interesting because when you're under the spirit, it's better than being under the law. It's actually, it, it's, it's holier because it's the life of God living through the life of the believer. But what I'd like to do is kind of take us through the chronology through Abraham's life. And we won't read all the verses for the sake of time, but you're, mo you're more than welcome to turn there. I'll give the references. But I want to follow Abraham's life from the age of 75 to the age of 103. So in Genesis chapter 12, if you want to turn there, fine. If not, that's okay. But in Genesis chapter 12, this is where Abraham is at 75 years old. And here's what the Bible says about God initiating a relationship with Abraham. <clears throat> it says this, verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get you out of your country and from your kindred and from your father's house unto a land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless you and curse them that curses you. And in you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. What do you think his takeaway from that is? No internet. Uh, he can't check the weather. He can't map quest it. Is map quest even a thing? Or Google Maps it, map it. He can't, 
he can't plot the shortest distance and where are the little gas stations and like uh, for my wife and I situation, where are the nicest bathrooms on the way there? You know, he can't plot that course out. God just said, leave your country and your family and your familiarity, step out by faith and go to some place that you don't even know. But trust me in that whole thing. Oh, and even though you're 75 years old, through you, you're going to have so many children. What would you think? That's, that's a crazy invitation, right? And so Abraham, he does. He steps out. You could read on down to verse 9. But we'll, let's go skip down to, uh, let's do Genesis chapter 16. So Abraham, well, chapter 12, Abraham, his nephew Lot, his wife Sarah, they all go. Um, you know, he has some struggles in chapter 14 with Lot, kind of comes to his rescue, meets Melchizedek, uh, you know, gives him tithes in that passage. And then Abraham has a vision in, in uh, chapter 15, and then God makes this covenant, this blood covenant, puts Abraham asleep. <clears throat> meaning that Abraham has no part in the covenant. God walks through the, the, the halves of the animals, meaning that to keep the conditionality of that covenant, it was up to God, not up to Abraham. Abraham is just put into that covenant as a recipient, showing God's grace in that whole thing. And then in chapter uh, 16, you come to in Genesis, the promise of Abraham and Sarah starting a great nation from their own offspring had not come to pass and Sarah was getting impatient. Sound familiar? Abraham could have got impatient. There could have been doubt. I mean, think about all that's gone on since they've stepped out uh, by faith in chapter 12. Uh, then uh, she took matters into her own hands and suggested that Hagar should be the one to help God's plan out since God is, is not answering on their time frame. Ten years. Look at chapter 16. Now Sarah and Abraham's wife bear him no children, verse 1, and she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarah said unto Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing, I pray you, go in unto my handmaid, that it may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abraham hearkened to the voice of Sarah, almost like how Adam hearkened unto the voice to his wife, uh, Eve. And Sarah, and Abra Sarah, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abraham had dwelt 10 years, that's how we get age 85, in the land of Canaan, and gave her to her husband, Abraham, to be his wife. And he went in unto Hagar, had physical intimate relations, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress was despised in her eyes. And Sarah said unto Abraham, my bad, no, she said, my wrong be upon me. I have given my maid into thy bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her, arts, her eyes. And the Lord judged uh, between me and thee. So she's jealous. But this was her plan, right? You could see how the flesh gets all weird when we take matters into our own hands. I won't go on, but at age 86 um, and in chapter 16 still, Hagar uh, does get pregnant and Sarah gets jealous and Sarah then throws Hagar out. That's how she responded. Get out of here. Um, that's how well polygamy works. Uh, but the Lord intervened and sent Hagar back and promised to take care of Hagar and her son uh, when Abe, old Abe, was 86 
when uh, Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. So fast forward, Genesis chapter 17 through 18, we won't go there, but Abraham's uh, 99 now, and God revisits. In fact, he keeps reestablishing this covenant because I think it's easy to think God's delays are equal to God's denials. Did you hear me on that? We think God's delays are often God's denials because he's delaying, that means it's a no. And so God comes to him in his grace and says, no, I still, I'm still going to keep my word. I'm still going to make a great nation through you, Abraham and Sarah. You just got to trust in God to bring that to pass. And so he reestablishes that. In fact, he reconfirms it with Sarah. And so that's what's going on. And so uh, when he's 99, God revisits and re-reveals his promise to Abraham that he will be a great nation and indeed uh, give them a son to be the promised one that would later, you know, uh, bear, give birth to uh, Jacob, which is Israel, and then you know the rest of the story. So fast forward to age 100. So for 14 years, Ishmael has been the only son. Abraham was so proud of him and he gave him all of his attention, but now there's a rival. At age 100, Abraham and Sarah have conceived a son, and it's a miraculous thing to take place. Um, this whole thing with, I forgot to read it. Anyways, I, I'm not going to read it. But um, there's a lot of stuff that's going on for them to get to this part to where I would have thought, man, um, I would have been doubting as well. So, they finally, God comes through with his word. Uh, they do conceive a son, and he, um, they name him Isaac. Uh, and I want to bring something out to you because there's tension between Abe's babes. Can I say that? <laughs> between Abe's babes. So there's a 14-year-old, uh, and then there's a little toddler, and something happens. So when Isaac was about three, it was a custom of the people to wean their children. He was circumcised on the eighth day, but wean the children from, you know, nursing and stuff. Um, and they made a great fanfare about this. And this is the point that I want to bring up, because keeping in mind, there's an allegory going on through this whole thing. Hagar, matters into our own hands, flesh, Mount Sinai, the law. Sarah, the promise, the spirit, God's way. You have to wait. You can't do it because your womb's dead. God has to do it. Something that you can't do, like saving yourself, giving yourself eternal life. Something you can't do. Only God has to do it. So that's Sarah, freedom, the holy Jerusalem, right? Um, so let's look at what's taking place here. I want you to turn to Genesis 21, or it'll be on the screen actually. Genesis 21, I want to read this account. Now, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made me laugh. That's what the na name Isaac means. So that all who hear uh, will laugh with me. In other words, you could also interpret it. She laughed initially because she doubted, but this laughter could also turn to joy, right? Wouldn't you be joyful? You had a kid and you weren't able to have a kid. And she said, who could have said to Abraham, will Sarah suckle children? For I have borne a son to him in his old age. God, I mean, you could think that of both of them. This is a, impossible. I was thinking this is almost like a virgin birth miracle. It's like kind of beyond imagination that this could happen. It's just biologically not possible. 
unless God were to intervene. It's kind of that, not maybe not that size of a miracle, but almost that kind of style of miracle that only God could pull off. And the child grew and was weaned. And when Abraham made a great feast that day that Isaac was weaned, it's about three years old. So that is, now he's about 103, Abraham. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, mocking. This is the point that I wanted to bring up. Mocking. And she said to Abraham, cast out the slave woman and her son. For the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Uh, and the thing was very evil in Abraham's sight because of his son. So you could see the incompatibility. She's saying, wait a second. The son of the flesh is now persecuting and mocking the son of the promise. And here's what I want to bring out. First of all, look at the definition here of the word taken in Hebrew. Sachach. Uh, because it's, you got to be good with your lugies if you're going to speak Hebrew. It means to laugh outright in merriment or scorn by implication to sport, laugh, mock, play, make sport, um, <clears throat> to jest, to toy with, to hold in deliberate scorn and disdain. That's what the person who wasn't of the spirit and of faith, that's their feeling towards those who, who are of the Spirit, and who are of faith. Are you getting the tension in the allegory? You getting it? I, 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 can't, I can only share the information. God has to give the illumination. In this allegory, at where Paul is saying, I'm going back to tell you something about these two brothers. There's tension. And he mentions, I don't know if you caught it in Galatians, he says, and even so it is now. Paul updates that. He says, it was back then, and he says, even so it is now. I'll read Galatians 4.29. He that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit, even so it is now. So what he's saying is the same contempt, the same scorn, the same mock, the same resistance, the same resentment, the same like incompatibility that went on then, it's going on today if you're going to walk after the Spirit. And it could be internal resistance from those that are sitting in the pew next to you. Don't, don't look to your wife. Or, or I don't know. If the sandal fits. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It could be those under the same roof. It could be most all the time those that don't have the spirit outside of these doors are going to have that attitude towards us. They are. All right? So <clears throat> my main point is this, and then we'll wrap it up and have the Lord's Supper here. Those in the flesh will scorn those who are in the spirit. We as Christians, I want to make this important distinction, we as Christians can walk after the flesh even though we're in the Spirit. But the world who does not have the Spirit can only walk in the flesh. Do you know what I mean by that? Okay, so a Christian, we're a saint, uh, we're sanctified, we're holy, we're righteous, we're justified, but we could live unholy, ungodly, unsaintly. We could live that way, right? But when you do that, does the Spirit leave you? No. He that's joined into the Spirit, or joined to the Lord, is one Spirit with Him. You go to a prostitute, 
you take the Lord with you and that prostitute. We talked about that last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So, can, so when the Bible in Romans chapter 8 and others talks about walking after the flesh or walking in the flesh, it's two different things. If you're a Christian, you could walk after the flesh when you choose to quench the spirit, not yield to God, and do your own thing. We all do that. That's called walking after the flesh. But the person that's not a Christian, they walk in the flesh all the time and they're never in the spirit because the spirit's not in them. So what I'm trying to distinguish here is there's going to be two groups of people that are going to persecute you. There's going to be Christians who are walking after the flesh and your life is going to bring conviction to them and they're going to persecute you. I've seen it all over in churches. It's where division comes from. It's where a lot of the problems come from. Christians walking after the flesh, right? And then the fruits of the flesh come from that. Jealousy, division, hatred, all the, all the stuff. Gossip, <coughs> envy. But the world who doesn't even have access to the Spirit, they're always in the flesh. Always in the flesh. They don't have any other option. That's why they need to be born again, Right? So I don't say that as a condemning way. I just say that as a, I'm reporting the facts, okay? So they also will mock Christians who are of that same faith or of that same race or of that same identity as the child of the promise, the miraculous birth, uh, that of Isaac. So don't think it's strange if we face contrary attitudes towards us. The world will persecute, mock, scorn us when we stand for Christ and walk in the Spirit and not after the flesh. Uh, we can try to be compatible with the world, but we just aren't. Uh, they aren't of the same family. They don't share the same spiritual DNA. They have a different father. They have a different master. They have a different destiny, and they have different desires and different philosophies. And you can't fault them for that. That's why they need to be born again. That's, we need to love them. Um, not condemn them or throw rocks at the obvious. So, but the problem is, is that because we don't want to face what Isaac faced, the mock, the scorn, the disdain, the rejection, we try to look like the world, act like the world, talk like the world, sound like the world, and even smell like the world. And here's something that really hit me when I was in Israel. I went to the place where, um, I forget what they call it. I took pictures of it. They have a, they have a rooster. Um, uh, there and it's like some gold r rooster because remember Jesus said to Peter hey you're gonna deny me three times and then the, the rooster will crow uh, well at this place the very same place where Peter denied uh, Jesus I was there and I only cried a couple times not I'm not bragging but it's two times related to dogs right um, and then this other time where I was at Israel and I was looking at that rooster and I was thinking about Peter because he was standing by the fire. Everyone there, the Romans and Je all the people that hated Jesus. And they, he's warming his hand by the fire. And a little girl says, hey, aren't you one of his? He's like, no. Right? He's secondhand smoke. He's smelling like the world. You know, sharing the same heat, same smoke. Um, smelling like them, looking like them. And then she says it again. And he, to convince everyone that he's not with Jesus, he starts to cuss. He starts to talk like the world. 
You know, you could see how the whole thing would go on. If there was other things offered, uh, he might even go along with that just to prove that he is not with Jesus. And I think the pressure there um, is real for everyone. And there are so many times for me, I wept there because, um, because I have settled for things less than Jesus on many occasions. I've come away, uh, you know, almost in a way that I, I look just, I don't know. Um, and so I'm not throwing rocks at Peter for denying Jesus because I feel like I've done the same. And that's why I really, I just, I wept at that place in Israel. But let's look at some verses here as related to this. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4. Your past life may have been good enough for pagan purposes, though it meant sensuality, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousals. That's just, you know, sleeping around, partying, and worshiping false idols. Indeed, your former companions may think it very strange that you no longer join with them in their riotous excesses. And, according, and accordingly, uh, they say all sorts of abusive things about you. I just heard really weird news yesterday. Two bombs dropped my way uh, from an old friend from high school. I was not raised in a Christian home, wasn't uh, a Christian in high school. Not proud of that, just telling you the, the history, the backstory. Um, my high school girlfriend, I already told my wife this story because I just heard yesterday. Um, you know, just like had everything in front of her. Gymnast, diver, uh, prom queen, all that kind of stuff. Had a great future in front of her. Four years we dated. She left me for a teacher in high school, and I was like devastated, you know, <laughs> pretty devastated about that. Best thing that could have happened for me because from that, um, she really broke my heart. As a, you know, Like I was graduated at age 17. I was just Adam's age, you know. I'm thinking, man, he doesn't know very much. I didn't know very much. My little heart was broken. And, um, and then it kind of caused me to go in the direction to seek out God. And I, it's kind of weird that God used this relationship for me to kind of seek out God. But we didn't live godly because we weren't saved, you know. And so um, I, get this, I get this phone call from uh, my buddy yesterday and he said, did you know um, Dana died? And I'm like, what? And I hadn't spoke to her in years, you know. And I said, I did not know. And he said, yeah, she drank herself to death. And I went, are you kidding me? And so that was pretty devastating news. But I, when I was looking at these, this, these verses and stuff like that, God when I went back to my friends in high school, because I was a class speaker, I spoke at graduation, then I spoke at our 10-year reunion. I said, God, if you give me a chance to speak to them, I'm going to give them the gospel. And so I did. I gave them the gospel. And a lot of my friends were like, you used to do all this stuff. I think it's pretty weird that you're a Christian now. <laughs> right? And I was kind of a weird Christian for a long time, too. And they're like, well, what kind of Christian are you? I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so I'm trying to figure it out. But when you start to walk in the Spirit, your old companions are going to think it very odd the way you're living. It's kind of like this Ishmael and Isaac clash. They're just two different sources of where people get their values in life and philosophy and worth. You know, uh, the one is trying to get life out of like 
the, all these, these lifestyles, and we as Christians are getting life from the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Look at John chapter 15. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And, and notice this. Look, when, Jesus, when you surrender to have Jesus live in you and live his life through you, it's when he's living his life through you that they're going to hate you. They're not, they're not going to hate you if you don't let Jesus live through you. But he says, if you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. That's pretty strong language, hate, if you think of that. I don't want to be hated, right? I want everyone to like me. <laughs> I don't want to be hated. But what Jesus is saying is, I, Peter says this, don't think it's strange concerning the, the trial and the tribulation that's about. Don't think it's odd, because it's going to happen. I guess you could, you could try to avoid it, you know, like Peter, and just kind of stand by the fire and warm yourself and sound like the world, look like the world. But look, if you're going to allow Jesus to live through you, if you're going to be a child identified with Isaac, the one of the promise, the one of the spirit, the one of the, and the same family sometimes is going to mock, persecute, ridicule, scorn, uh, and no one wants that, but it'll happen. John 17 says it this way, and there's a lot of verses that I could have copied and pasted, but I just picked a few. I have given them your word, and the world hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from evil. Look, the Bible says, you know, don't make uh, friends with the world. That doesn't mean we can't be friendly, but it's saying like, look, you're not identified with their culture, with their system. So be a light in the world, be in the world, but not of the world. And I love this passage because it gives us that location, location, location thing. Look at 1 John chapter uh, 4. You are of God, little children, have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Because we contain the life of God, the one that gave Sarah life in her womb, the one that, that did it miraculously, we have a miraculous new birth experience as well, being born again where God forgave us of all of our sins. He filled us with his life. And then he says in contrast, he says, they are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world hears them. You find yourself kind of incompatible with certain conversations in the workplace. I do. Kind of incompatible with the philosophies of the world. Look, there's a guy at my work, and everyone has a story, I get it, but um, he related to me really well. His, he's married to another guy. He's in a homosexual marriage, and his husband um, or companion, I don't even know what to call it, lives or works in the same place. Um, and am I rude to him? No. Um, they all know that I'm in the ministry and that I'm a pastor. Um, they, they know that. Um, but I was able to share with him the other day about my finding my new sister, right? And so um, he's my new old sister. For those of you that didn't know, I had a sister that was put up for adoption. And she's three years older than me, and I just met her a couple weeks ago. Um, Anyways, I told him that story, and he's like, well, I was adopted. And then even after I came back from meeting her, we had a great discussion about how did it go, how did it go, how did it go? And look, I am friendly and loving and kind and nice. It doesn't mean I endorse or agree, right? I side with God, but it doesn't mean that. I, look, I'm, I, 
I, I love this guy. I, I truly do care for his spiritual well-being. And I, I think we have a good, friendly relationship. But we're incompatible. We're, our, 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 you know, our, we don't have the same life source. We don't have the same destiny. We're not going to the same place. We don't have the same dad, you know, <laughs> um, been born again. And do I want him to be born again? Most definitely. Um, so that's pressure from outside. And lastly, I just want to talk about pressure from inside and then we'll be done. So I thought it was interesting. I was reading some things for, by J. Vernon McGee. He says this. He said, when he first started preaching, got out of seminary, his first message was on prophecy. And he told this old timer that was in church, he's like, man, I'm really, if I keep preaching prophecy, I'm really going to start offending people, aren't I? He's like, no, not at all. On the contrary, you'll draw a really big crowd. People like that kind of stuff. He's like, you want to really start offending people? Preach the unadulterated grace of God. <laughs> he's like, that will offend people. You preach grace? You're going to offend people. I thought that was interesting. And just by way of that premise, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to journey real quick. No verses to look at. You know them. <clears throat> Cain and Abel. I'm going to talk about siblings just like, just like Ishmael and Isaac were at odds. I want to talk to you to show you this theme that there's people in the Bible that illustrate this also. You've got this works versus grace or, uh, you know, um, the spirit versus the flesh. So Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain thought he would uh, come to God on his terms, by his work, by his effort. And Abel came to God with God's terms and not his effort, but in faith through grace. And Cain was so irritated that he killed his brother. That's what I'm talking about. There's a spirit, there's a spirit of antichrist that just kind of comes up when you come to God on God's terms, when you, when you live out the Christ life, there's a spirit of Antichrist that despises grace and so much that it will take a rock and smash your head if they could get away with it. <laughs> Jacob and Esau. Remember, Esau despised his uh, birthright, and Jacob's like, I want it. And what did that represent? It meant that you were the priest when the dad died. You were the one responsible for all the sacrifices. And what would the sacrifices mean? It meant that it was pointing to Jesus, the ultimate sacrifice. What's he saying when he wanted the birthright? I want Jesus. Did his brother like that? Nope. What about Joseph and his brothers? Uh, remember Joseph? So Isaac, in our same scenario, he fell in love with who? Rachel. Remember, she couldn't have kids, and that, that other one with the weird eyes had kids with. Um, but then God finally, um, the love of his life, right? Or am I thinking of, no, am I thinking the wrong one? Am I thinking that, no, I'm thinking of the right one, Jacob, um, Rachel, and then they have a kid, and they, remember they have 12, not him and her, but because <clears throat> there was Leah too, um, but they have 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. But remember, it was Joseph that got the coat because he was the son of Rachel. Remember that? And remember, he was the one that was all dialed into God with his visions. And the, the brothers are like, dude, why are you, oh, you think your dad's favorite? They hated him. I'm talking about sibling, sibling rivalries. You know what I'm trying to say. Um, so they hated him. What did they do? They were going to kill him. And then they're like, no, let's just throw him in this ditch and sell him or whatever. 
All I'm trying to say is that grace will make you mad or grace will make you glad, right? If you're a Christian and you start to walk in the Spirit and you put God first and allow Christ to live in you and through you, don't be surprised if other Christians are going to be convicted by that and maybe come at you like a spider monkey. Christians who name the name of Christ can often be so mean to their other siblings, right? Gandhi said, I would have been a Christian if it weren't for Christians. <laughs> Sometimes there's so much infighting, no one wants to join that because there's so much, even in the book of Galatians, in the next chapter, he's like, you're going to bite and devour. It's Christian cannibalism. In the same book, he talks about it. Why? When you remove love, when you remove the spirit, people turn on each other. Uh, and then they start to bite and devour. And so let's just conclude this whole thing. Let's just wrap this up. In conclusion, I'm going to read that verse again. Just leave it on the conclusion slide. Thank you so much, Michael. You're awesome. He that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit. Even so it is now. It's still going on. You're not exempt. Maybe don't live, by, live in the spirit be a 007 Christian, uh, and it won't affect you. But when you live from Christ and Christ lives through, he says, don't, mar they hated me, they'll hate you too. Um, they're just contrary. So have you received the spirit of God? Are you in the family of God? Ha if you have, well, we have a choice to walk after the flesh or to walk after the spirit. Which will we choose? In other words, which mountain will we live from? The mountain of faith and the spirit or the mountain of flesh and death? Um, do you find yourself not desiring God and having a mocking or disdain spirit and attitude towards those who do? And to, those that, or, and to also the things of God? You know, I could do that. Anyone could do that. What about friendship with the world? We know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. It doesn't mean we can't be friendly, but anyways. Do we not want to be known as the child of the promise, as Isaac was, for fear uh, what the world might say or do? And they will. The, Christians will, too. Um, so it doesn't matter. Christians walking after the flesh or non-Christians who are only in the flesh they will go after those who are of the faith. So do we see ourselves more of an Ishmael or more of an Isaac? Well, let's do this. I'm going to pray, and then maybe the ushers could come forward, and we'll get ready to receive our offering. But um, give you a chance to stand up right now. Let's stand, and uh, I will pray as the ushers come forward, and we'll get ready to take the Lord's Supper. Heavenly Father, I pray for this wonderful church. I thank you for this message that really ministered to me. I thank you that, that whatsoever is written aforetime in the Old Testament was written for our learning so that we, through patience, might have hope in the Scriptures. And I thank you, Lord, that we could learn uh, where our life source comes from, where our mountain uh, that we live in comes from. And, Lord, give us courage as we, we live uh, out your life in this world. We know that we're in here. We know that you prayed for us. Uh, and so, Lord, protect us as we, we try to live with you and from you. Uh, and now, Lord, I pray as we take the Lord's Supper that um, we do it in remembrance of all that you've done uh, for us and to us. I pray this in Jesus' name.